What's up, family? It's your boy, Daniel James, and I'm your host right here on Black Voices on the Hill. Black Voices on the Hill is a podcast and radio show for the culture. We center Black lives, amplify Black stories, and enhance the Black experience at Cornell University, Greater Ithaca, and beyond. Black Voices on the Hill topics range from racism, police brutality, colorism, sexism, to Greek life leadership and white elitism in the Ivy League. Black Voice on the Hill envisions a Cornell that's sensitive to the plight of its Black students, aware of the Black excellence in its college town, and unashamed about them changing the world. We see Black excellence at Cornell. We believe in Black empowerment. We love the Black experience. Black Voice on the Hill is brought to you by WVBR News. To see what more new and upcoming episodes and for other Cornell and Ithaca news, please follow us at Black Voice on the Hill on Instagram. Follow WVBR FM News on Twitter, Facebook, or simply visit us on our website at wvbr.com slash black voices. Subscribe, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're on everything, y'all. And tune in right here on WVBR 93.5 FM every Friday at 2 p.m. Listen, y'all, today in the studio, we have a very, very special guest. I don't know if I'm going to be able to contain myself. Um, I don't think I'm ready. I know she's ready. But we have the chairwoman of the Tompkins County Legislature, we have Miss Leslin McBean Claiborne. Hello to the people, Miss Leslin. Hey, thank you so very much for, for inviting me, Danielle. I'm glad I could be here. Yes, ma'am. It's so glad. It's so good to have you. And um, I know we're going to have a great convo today. And I know someone's going to be inspired. Y'all, she was preaching before we even started, got started. So I know it's going to be good today. Miss <laughs> um, Claiborne, now, People know you um, as this illustrious chairwoman, this great legislator. Um, we know you as this powerful person in Ithaca and the county, Tompkins County at large. Um, we see the greatness today um, and you know all the good things that have happened in the county as a result of your great leadership, even just in this last year. But I want to ask you, because I'm sure it took, this rise was not a fast rise. Um, your ascension to this great office. I want to ask, who was Cl Chairwoman Claiborne's village? Who was your village? Because I knew it, it took a, a village to make you the woman who you are today. Who was your village? Excellent, excellent question. My village, and I'm sorry if I get a little religious, uh, please bear with me. I know there's that separation of church and state stuff. But I will start out by saying that my village certainly begins with my faith and begins with the Lord. Yes, Lord. You know, someone who has been directing my path pretty much all of my life, even the things that I, you know, didn't know I was going to be doing land in my lap with instructions on how to move forward. And sometimes with no instructions, but just use your brain and use your connections to make it happen. So first and foremost, you know, all praise and glory to God for being that guiding uh, portion of my village. My family comes next. You know, my husband and my children have been incredibly, incredibly supportive in all of this. Um, prior to them, you know, my mother. My mother, when I moved to the Ithaca community and decided I was going to run for office, my mother lived in Auburn and I had young children 
And if you can imagine running for office and being in elected office, it's late night meetings, it's all of these. My children went to daycare and I was always trying to run out of meetings before the daycare center puts them out on the side of the road because I wasn't there to pick them up on time. And then my mother retired and I moved her here to Ithaca and said, Mom, I got a job for you. How about full-time grandma slash childcare provider? My mother passed away a few years ago, but she was definitely another pillar in my village. My co-workers at GIAC, those folks have held me up. When I said, I am so done, I'm done with elected office, I need to move on, they were like, mm-mm, no, we got your back, you need to do this. They have held me up. Members in this community, and I can name names, but I don't want to leave anybody out, but former um, alderperson, Julia Diane Sands, her name still stands um, in the halls of City Hall. Uh, she was my inspiration to run for office and to be involved and connected. You know, she was a woman of short stature, a woman with a disability, but a mighty, mighty giant when it came to social justice issues. So all those folks made up the village of people who have encouraged, inspired, and held me up throughout this journey. I will add to that list now my colleagues of the legislature. I've been on this legislature for a while, and this is the first time that I'm chair of the legislature. And I'm proud of that. The legislature was at a point where they couldn't figure out a chair. They were tied in votes at the beginning of the year, their organizing, organizing meeting. And my colleagues looked to me and said, it's time. You have to do this. And so I appreciate them, you know, not just to break the tie, but they also saw something in me that could help restore the trust and faith in the body. And it's hard for that when you're in politics. Trust and faith is something that mm, normally don't exist. And so that's my village. Long answer, but that's my village. I didn't want to leave anybody out. Right. I know how it feels. I loved that response. Goodness, that was that was what I wanted. Um, you talk about your mother. I want to get to your mother, um, this whole entire story. You are originally, you were born, not born in the U.S., am I, am I correct? You were not born in the U.S., and from my understanding, you immigrated in 1989. Now, I could have sworn you were born in 1989. The, the <laughs> oh, great, flatter me, why don't you? <laughs> but you are originally from Guyana, correct? Um, tell uh, yeah. us what, what led you to come to the U.S., and what were the circumstances surrounding that? Um, you were a Black woman in South America, to becoming a, a black woman in the States. How, how was that transition and what led to that? Oh my gosh, Danielle, how much time do we have, man? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I am originally from Guyana, formerly British Guyana mm -hmm. in South America, right on the Northern coast of South America, flanked by Venezuela on our West coast, uh, Suriname, Brazil, uh, surrounding us. Guyana is the only mainland country in South America that is also part of the Caribbean. So um, I was a teacher by profession in Guyana. That's what I was doing. And um, 
uh, did uh, decided I wanted to go into law. I went to Mona in, in Jamaica to the University of the West Indies and then decided mm, law school is not for me. So <laughs> I decided I wanted to stick with teaching. When I was graduating from high school, my mother left the country. My mother uh, left Guyana because my mother is a nurse by profession. She wanted to continue her education. And she had an opportunity and migrated to the United States, continue her, uh, uh, her education. She was older and she was really interested in this nursing career. Um, she was a midwife actually. And uh, she, she left when I was graduating from high school. And I graduated real early from high school. I was one of those brainiac little children. And um, when I graduated from college, she was in there. My, my teacher training license, you know, she was in there because she was here doing her thing. Matter of fact, my mother and I were valedictorians and class speakers of her classes. She was speaking at her class and I was speaking at my graduation a day apart. And once I graduated, I started teaching in Guyana. I loved it. I was doing some international teaching as well, but I missed my mother. She was my best friend. And so I was able to get a visa. It was a permanent visa, but I thought I would only come and visit. So I come and visit, get my fill of my mommy, and then I go back home because I love my students. I love everything I was doing and also needed to fulfill uh, my contract with the government of Guyana. When I saw my mother, I didn't want to leave her again. I couldn't bear the thought of being separated from her again. Like we picked up from where we left off. We reconnected we held each other tight for about a week <laughs> the longest hug in history and she needed me and I needed her we made each other better you say that about old married couples <laughs> like they make each other better my mother and I made each other better and so I turned my, my permanent visa into literally just staying. I didn't like it. I'm not gonna lie, I didn't like being here in the United States. It was March and honey, it was cold. I'm from the tropics, okay? And all you saw were my eyes. And the first time I went out, and didn't know there was anything called black ice and I fell like 18 times on the sidewalk. I was like, that's it. I'm going home. I don't know why anybody lives in this mess. Right. And if you know anything about Auburn, New York, it's in the snow belt. And so there's lots of snow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That year I started teaching and I was looking around for a teaching opportunity. And I started in Syracuse. Wow. Uh, at Delaware Academy in elementary school. Now I'm a high school teacher, so elementary didn't work for me. The first snowfall, Daniel, I went out and my mom made me buy these, you know, knee-high snow boots. They were all nice and cozy. The first snowfall in Syracuse, there was so much snow in my boots because Syracuse gets a lot of snow. And my ankle, which I had broken back in the day, swole so big. They had to cough my expensive boots off of my foot oh, to get it off. 
Goodness. I told my mom, I'm going home. I don't know how you live here, but I cannot stay here in the United States of America. This is crazy. Right. <laughs> so that's the story of my mom. Brief, real brief. Brief. Being here, it was quite a transition. Um, learning is a whole different culture. Because then I had to pack up my life and move it here. Um, like I said, moving to Ithaca because I was looking for a high school. Um, and after the first year in elementary school in Syracuse, another time I'll tell you that whole story, it was rough. I closed my eyes and pointed. I met with the affirmative action director in Syracuse. She said, well, where do you want to go? At the Syracuse City School District. I said, I just want a high school. She said, well, where? I said, I don't know. I don't know the place. <laughs> I'm here. I don't know anything about this place. And she said, well, here's a map. Here are all the places. I closed my eyes. I pointed the first three places I applied to. And Ithaca was the first place that had an opening at the high school that called me. And so I showed up. Didn't know where Ithaca was. Didn't know anything about it. But I came for work at the high school and I've been here ever since. Sounds like a divine appointment to me. <laughs> um, that's what I thought. <laughs> that's what I think too. Listen, okay, so I wanna ask you now, um, transitioning from your work because you have bachelor's of degrees, bachelor of science degrees in K through 12, intercultural communication, adult ed, you were um, deputy director for a long time of the Greater Ithaca Activity Center in Ithaca of doing multicultural, multi-generational work. I want to ask, what made you transition from doing community center work? Um, and I want to ask what exactly that was, if we can. But I want you to talk also about what made that transition appropriate into politics, to becoming a part of the, Ithaca, the Tompkins County Legislature. What, what made the move to politics a, a good move for you? That's a question you're going to have to ask this community of people. <laughs> I still, for the record, I still do both. I still, you still do both. Okay. have my political uh, office work, and I am now the director of the community center. That's why I said my time is crazy making, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yes, when I worked for the community center and did the work I did, everything from program development to staff development, personal management, um, and financial development uh, for the center, the nonprofit part of the center, you know, you get to become aware because you start networking in the community, building relationships, getting to know people, and you become aware of all the things that are happening in community, in particular the community of color. So I started with some neighbors, a neighborhood association on the south side. And we, uh, one of our first uh, actions was to make sure we get street lights on one of the darkest, if not the darkest streets in Ithaca, which is in the, I call it the black neighborhood and the Cleveland Avenue historic street. And unfortunately, a street where there was a lot of drug activity and crime. And I wonder why there were no dog on street lights. Right. And then we organized against a developer who was trying to push back into this neighborhood with 
commercial property. And like, this is a historic neighborhood. This is historic Wheat Streets, you know, now Cleveland Avenue, where we have the AME Zion Church. And right on the top of it is the Southside Community Center, uh, Black Community Center and runaway slaves and free slaves whose homes we have documented on that street. Why would we want to have more commercial property encroaching on any neighborhood? So we push back on that. Then there was the gas station around the corner just from where I lived that uh, was abandoned and never cleaned up. And there's, you know, rusted out tanks and leaking, you know, carcinogen uh, there. And so we got involved with that and getting it cleaned up. You know, getting it designated, first of all, as a brown site and then getting it cleaned out by the state of New York and the owner of the company and their insurance company. So we worked hard on those things. And I say we because it wasn't just to me. You know, I took a leadership role in all of them, but it wasn't just to me. The neighborhood of people, Lynn Jackier, John Simon, Gino Burke, um, God rest his soul, and many others. So when the opportunity presented itself for a seat on the legislature, those community members and others are the ones who signed me up. And I'm honest when I say signed me up. And there was a meeting, a vacancy committee for the person who was in the seat. I got a call sitting in my office that the, uh, they need to have a meeting because the person could no longer serve. They had moved out of the county and um, when I showed up for the meeting, they're like, hey, we decided to put your name on the ballot. And I said, huh? <laughs> well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know? And then I went through the process. It was more of a process than that. Um, honestly, Daniel, I didn't even know the difference between Republicans and Democrats. And they're telling me, well, you're running on a Democratic ticket and the Democratic law is okay. I came from Guyana, this country. <laughs> I know socialism <laughs> and I know liberalism. I don't know what is a Republican or a Democrat. And, uh, and that's the beginning of the story and how I ended up. But showing up with community, community organizing led me to this place. And I was able to do the community organizing because working at a community center you get to hear, your ears are to the ground, you get to hear what's going on in community for families, for children, for elderly, for everyone, you know, what their concerns are. So organizing around that, being able to show up at city council meetings and say, please, we're asking you to either fund this or defund or not approve this encroachment gave me a sense of what it was like to be um, dealing in the realm of politics. So when folks asked me, when they wrote me in, I was like, okay, I guess I'll do it. And uh, the rest is history. Here I am. The rest is history. Uh, you know, you keep saying organizing and um, my major is industrial and labor relations. So we study a lot about labor organizing. So uh, you're hitting home with a lot of these topics. <laughs> what it means to lobby for certain issues. What I like about your story is I don't see someone who aimed to be a career politician 
but they came in really having issues on their mind in their community, ways in which they had a vision about where they wanted to see their community. And so this was the best way to bring it about. I love that. Um, so long story short, you become the first woman of color, not to mention the first black woman to be the chairwoman of the Topkins County Legislature. Um, fellow legislator Anna Kelly's, I read an article, she called you the soul of the ah. legislature. Um, but when you, she did, but when you were elected, the first thing you said, you called it heartbreaking um, concerning being the first. And I, I wanna ask you, what is it about being the first anything as a person of color? Because people often think it's an honor, but it actually can become quite defeating. What, are you tired of being the first? <laughs> because you've been the first at quite a few things. And what was that call like for you to be the chairwoman? What does that change? What's it been like leading during a pandemic as well? Like I started out saying, you know, the good Lord has a plan for me. Because I thought, good, geez, this is baptism by fire. <laughs> you know, after two, a 200-year history of the Tompkins County Legislature, and that's partly for me, that says it's heartbreaking that, you know, we're now celebrating a first, you know, first person of color, first Black woman to be, you know, elected chair of this body. But before that, I remember sitting there as the only not the first. My predecessor was also a woman of color uh, on the legislature. But for a long time, I was the only. And when you are sometimes the first or the only, there's a certain level, a certain amount of expectations for your presence. Like you're expected to be involved in everything. You're expected to be the voice you know, for things when it comes to dealing with issues of people of color and racism and, and all the other isms that plague us. You are expected, and so your time basically is not your own. Inside, outside of that as well, you're expected to put up with a lot. There's no secret that when you take on certain roles as a person of color, there are people who are not going to like that. And as a black woman, as a woman, period, you're going to be undermined. You're going to be every opportunity folks are looking to see what mistakes you're making. And instead of helping to uplift you and helping to guide and support, they use those opportunities to tear down because you're a black woman or you're a woman, you can possibly have the wherewithal to be able to lead boldly a political body. And so when I say it was heartbreaking, all those things were in my head, joyous moment. You know, it wasn't lost in me that this was Black History Month when this was happening and the Pan-African flag was behind me. It wasn't lost on me but also the imagery in my head of what I've experienced before. And my husband and I both receive anonymous hate mail, you know, from cowards or, you know, folks who call me up and say, you know, I'm sure that, you know, my pedigree 
is beyond you and I'm much more intelligent than you are, but I'd like for you to listen to me. You know, those are real experiences that I've had and all those things played in my head when I thought of, yeah, joyous, amazing, historic, but heartbreaking at the same time because I knew there was more to come. I knew that I couldn't, you know, make even a little bitty itty mistake without it being so amplified and being the headlines. I knew full well everything that would come with this. And I would be honest, I mean, I'm a pretty straightforward person, you know, including, you know, colleagues who would put me down, not to my face, obviously, you know, but the good Lord, and the good book says, if no weapons form against me should prosper, and I live by that. I live by that. I live by the fact that I cannot let those things keep me down. I continue to go as I am guided and directed. I continue to do as the people would have me do. That's what works for me. You know, I used to take those things on. I can't anymore. And so, like I said, it was an amazing, for me, accomplishment, an amazing everything. I never wanted to be chair of the legislature, honestly, for all the reasons I mentioned. Never wanted to be chair. But this opportunity just presented itself. And my colleagues, some of my colleagues said it was time. And I was happy to step up and, and rise to that. But it certainly has come with, you know, thinking very carefully every step of the way, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go, all of the above. No mistakes. And knowing that I have to be in this day and age three times as good as my white colleague for people to recognize me as, you know, as equal. My, my, my. Uh, you know, it sounds like you've had to endure hardness as a good soldier, as a good soldier. And, um, you know, it's so funny because a lot of people want that limelight uh, when it comes to politics. I look at my peers, but there is such a cost to have the call that you have on your life. And um, that cost was immigration. That cost was hate mail. The cost is still not being enough, not being considered enough, but I tell you, but today I will let you know you are more than enough. <laughs> uh, I thank you. I thank you. I will say also very quickly that cost was my family as well. You know, it's like, you know, I have children. You make your children, you don't make your mind. You don't make their mind and they make mistakes. And it's not my adult children being held to their own mistakes. It's always like, you know, whose child that is, right? That is, you know, chairwoman or, or legislative lesson means clearborn child and they have this and that and the other. And, uh, you know, that aside, also just the cost of not being present sometimes for, my, for things with my children. I often tell people, you know, my son, my middle son was five and then he was eight, you know, when I had just started on the legislature and I have no idea what happened to six and seven, you know, because I was so busy, right? <laughs> I had to show up because if I didn't show up, when you're the only, Daniel, and 15, a 15 member legislative body, if one of my white colleagues wasn't present, 
nobody will really notice. If I'm not present, everybody notices that I was not there. Everybody and so knows. I had to be. I had to be. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Held to this unrealistic uh, expectation because you are the token in that room. And I, I feel that almost, I can't name a space where I haven't felt that um, in leadership on, at Cornell in particular. Let me ask you about this because um, we are, we are, time is just sped <laughs> ahead. Um, let me ask you, have, really I have two more questions. The first, um, the question I want to ask is, um, you were the chair of the Public Safety and Workforce Diversity and Inclusion Committee when you became a legislator. Um, and I want to ask you, with the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, the attempted murder of Jacob Blake, um, I want to ask you, what is Tompkins County legislator? I want your perspective on law enforcement. Um, what is Tompkins County doing currently to ensure that minority communities are being treated fairly and that there's this a cohesive relationship between law enforcement officers and our communities, Black communities, and also, you know, you were a strong advocate for, for alternative to incarceration programs as well. I want you to touch on that as well, but um, just sort of how do we get the relationship between public safety to be exactly that, public safety to people in the community as opposed to paramilitary and people in the community? Can you talk about that? Sure can. Um, you know, a few years ago, um, when we had the killing of a black man here in Ithaca, Sean Greenwood, by an officer of IPD, I have said it's time for officers to be retrained in humanness, in understanding human relations, and coming from a place of human connection rather than a place of um, penal code or a place of punishment. And that got blown out of proportion. Like, I'm saying that officers, you know, aren't humans. And that's not what I said. And I stand by those words today. And what we are doing in Tompkins County, and I applaud our sheriff, is engaging with community in putting all of the sheriff's policies and procedures, making them available online and transparent, and asking for public input. Take a look at them. What do those policies, where, where are they missing? Where are the gaps when it comes to supporting communities? We are making sure that our uh, law enforcement folks our men and women in uniform, those who are sworn to serve and protect, you know, as well as those who are non-binary, not just men and women who are there, that they understand what it is to be community. Community first. What does that mean? They are going through all levels of training and not just training, but training in practice to understand what it looks like. We need policies. I remember one of the former chiefs of, of IPD would say, you have to be accountable 
for every action that you take and be able to explain why that action is justified according to human connection. So if you pulled your taser, how much conversation did you have with that person to de-escalate? How much, and then you have to be accountable for why you thought pulling your taser was the right thing to do then, as opposed to calling somebody else or all of those things. So what we're doing when we talk of reimagining police, you know, we need someone to maintain law and order in our community. But we also need to bring forward the restorative justice initiatives that we've had, you know, to continue to build on our alternatives to incarceration, to continue to engage community to be part of policing. I remember going very quickly to a crime prevention conference with a bunch of police officers. And there was this group of senior women who were presenting, they were from Connecticut. And they were talking about how they became involved in community policing. They call themselves the community policers. And they would write little notes and leave on cars when the cars were being broken in throughout the neighborhood. And it was just, people were getting so many things stolen and then it moved up to houses being broken in. Broken in. And this is because we started walking around and seeing these cars that had, you know, a pocketbook open with money spilling out of it, just sitting there. So of course somebody's going to break into it to get the monies. And, and so they started leaving little love notes on the cars when they saw things, telling people, stop doing this, don't do this, do this, do that, who's other. And then they bumped it up to leaving little what they call tickets. And once they were doing that sort of stuff and working with police on it, right? People began to be a little more responsible. So they weren't being penalized. They were being educated. And they said within a few months, no more cars broken into, houses were secured, people were looking out for each other. It was done. That's the kind of thing when they talk about how we reimagine police. It's police working with community, not against community, and it's not us versus them. It's us working together on aspects of restorative justice, on aspects of you know, victim advocacy, on all of those things. So it's not draw my gun and then ask questions later. It's not the way to go. And at the same token, community you know, supporting and protecting police these are officers, many of them are officers who live in our community, who are right here with us. When they're not in uniform, they're Leslie, they're Danielle, they're those folks whose children play or children play on the same softball team or whatever. We need to have those things happening. Very important. You know, it's like schools. If principals don't know when we had a disproportionate number of black and brown children being suspended from schools when, you know, the white children who were involved in the same incidents weren't being suspended. Why? If Principal Leslin knows Daniel who comes to my school, I would know that if somebody comes to me and says, yo, Daniel brought a gun to school today, I would know, wait a minute, that's not Daniel. Why? Daniel, come in here, let's talk. What happened? Why did you do that? 
But if I don't know him, immediately I jump to suspending him. Like, oh, he's got to go. Expulsion exists, exact. All of those things. You know, Daniel gets picked and he gets into a fight. You know, I don't know Daniel. I was like, oh, he's a bully. You know, Daniel is a criminal. I start criminalizing and dehumanizing Daniel. But if I knew the students who were in my school, I had an, I take an opportunity to know them, you know, then I would know, oh, that's not Daniel. He doesn't just jump up and start punching people in the face. Something happened and he may not deserve that expulsion. We as a community have to be thinking that way. Our police have to be working with our community and community working with police. A new breed of community policing is what I call it. A new breed of humanizing people rather than dehumanizing people. Stop making black and brown people the other. We have to stop. George Floyd, we watched it, dead, knee on the neck, hollering for his mama, saying I can't breathe. But yet we want to turn around and say, you know, he was a drug addict and he was a this and he was a that. Nonsense, utter nonsense. We don't say that about our police, right? Like, oh, that police officer, he's being corrupt. He, he beats his wife and he this, and I expected him to do that. That's not what we do. So why are we doing that to black and brown people, and especially black and brown men? Not okay. Not okay. Breonna Taylor is dead. You opened fire in her home. She, in the middle of the night, she is dead. But now we want to talk about how her ex-boyfriend was a drug dealer. How does that justify her death? Not okay. So we have got to have these real conversations. People have got to take off their sensitivity skin because somebody said something about the way I police. Now I'm all upset and I'm not going to respond. We got to stop that nonsense. If you are going to get into that role, you have to be willing to take the good with the bad and you have to be willing to work with people for systemic change. It has to happen. And not just check off the box that I went to the implicit bias training. Put it into action. And let's talk about what putting into action looks like. Very important. And being willing to be held accountable. I'm being willing to be held accountable when I don't step up to the plate and do right. Then you, my friend, who are strapped with guns and tasers and pepper spray and all that stuff that can hurt somebody, you should be willing to be held accountable as well. See, you made me go off on my rant there, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. Um, I tell you right now, if I don't say anything else, I think restorative justice, well practiced in schools will yes. undo what we have seen with this school to prison pipeline. It yes. will undo this taking out of our community. Because I look at, I've, I've worked in, you know, Ithaca public schools and I've also, as a tutor, and I've also been in the Tompkins County jails as well. I, I've been, well, at least it was in Lansing. It was um, a Finger Lakes Residential Center mm -hmm. as a mentor for incarcerated youth. And I'm wondering why are all of the people that look like us there and I don't see them in the schools being educated? Thank you. 
and receiving it. So it's a pipeline. It's deliberately set up for that to happen, for that failure to happen. Absolutely. Time Absolutely. to dismantle it. Time to abolish it. Racism at its finest. It's finest. Chairwoman Claiborne, uh, last question. And I don't know how in the world um, Grace is going to uh, edit, but you better make all of, all of this better be in there, Grace. Oh, she hears me when I come. Listen. Um, Sorry, Grace. The last question that I want to ask you is about voting. Of course, um, we're coming up on an election season, and you're a legislator. Um, you're encourage, encouraging people to vote. I saw you at Mayor Myrick. Mayor Myrick's going to be on the show. Uh, <laughs> let's talk to him on Friday. So, uh, but you guys were at an event called Cornell Votes, encouraging people mm -hmm. to vote. I want to ask, talk to our demographic specifically about voting as a tool for leveraging power. And uh, it's not the end all be all because you talked about organizing. We're effective at organizing, but we haven't found this as a tool typically that advances our cause because we're our vote is suppressed it's been so long suppressed black women really were not allowed to vote until right in the last half of a century uh, so i want to talk about talk about that encourage the people to vote black people to vote so you you heard me and i tell my story about being you know naturalized citizen and just appreciating the opportunity to to vote and taking it very seriously. I don't miss a vote. I miss a vote. I'll tell you, I started getting heart palpitations. I was like, oh, I can't. As a young person, you know, you always hear this mantra, you know, the young people are our future, but that's the reality. We're aging out. I'm not going to continue to be on the legislature forever and ever and ever. You know, I'm going to move on. Our young people are the ones who need to move this needle forward. And the only way you can move this needle forward, organizing is one thing, but you have to hold that power in your hand and to hold the power, you have got to vote. That is the biggest, power, most powerful tool that you have is being able to vote. Voting affects your finances. Voting affects your education. Voting affects your ability to make choices about your own body. Voting affects everything everything you know what medical treatment you get what mental health care you receive voting affects whether more black and brown people that look like you tiana look like me end up in jails and prisons and they're destined to do that by the time they're in third grade voting affects that and unless we exercise that right we can't make change happen we can't so no matter how we think we can the constitution the systems that are set up are designed for us to vote if we are to make change happen so please you don't hear anything else from me here today understand and know that that power you don't give that away to anyone no, you use it. You use it for organizing, for, you know, labor negotiations. You have a vote. You know, when you were little and you were playing marbles in the street and it's like, who's going to have next? You voted. I'll be next. And everybody right. said, okay. So why do we want to give that away? 
when our lives depend on it, when everything that we do matters when it comes to that, why do we want to give it away? Why do we want to be complacent with it? That we cannot do. We have to. That's our biggest, most powerful tool that we can use. When the government decides that they are going to put a toxic plant next to a school in your neighborhood, you have to vote against that. If you are not exercising that right to vote and to vote the people out, who thought that that was a good idea? It's gonna happen in your neighborhood and then you'll all be dead. So no, you don't want that. Cornell University decided that they're going to do something that is going to affect your education you don't want it, you have to vote against it. You have to organize, you have to lobby, and you have to vote. And even if you can't have the vote as a student body, you have to be lobbying the trustees for them to vote. So it's extremely important to vote. We are in trying, troubling times. And if we wanna see change, that as young people who are going into this next generation, are going to be able to live the life that we want to live, we have to vote. Show up at the polls. Work on somebody's campaign, not just vote. Work on campaigns. Get involved. Very important. important. Get in that good trouble, like John Lewis talked about and fought so hard for, necessary trouble. That necessary trouble is voting. Yes, and as uh, John Lewis also said, if it wasn't so powerful, why would they want to take it away from you? Why, why would, would they, they take it away? Really? It's the most powerful tool in our democracy. Vote. That's right. That's right. Chairwoman Clairvoyant, thank you so much for coming today. How can the people reach you on, uh, you're on the social media sites, are you? I couldn't find you on Instagram. I am. I am. There's a legislator, Leslie McBean Clairborn, um, okay. uh, Facebook page. You can always, look, I don't remember all the handles, man. I've got a 14-year-old daughter who manages that. <laughs> but I know I'm on Instagram. I'm on, I'm on a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, follow me on Twitter as well. Um, I don't remember all the handles. I can give them to you at some point. Okay. But anytime, you can also email me at, you know, lmcbean at tompkins-co.org. I am available. Beautiful. Well, you guys will be able to find the handles on Black Voice on the Hill Instagram. We'll make sure we'll make it available. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. Um, I hope that you all tuned in and encouraged more now than ever to be sure to vote, be engaged. And to my people, be unapologetically, un unapologetically Black, too. Uh, to see when more new and upcoming episodes of Black Voice on the Hill and for other Cornell and Ithaca news, follow at Black Voices on the Hill on Instagram, follow WBBR FM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or visit us at our website at wbbr.com slash black voices to catch all the older episodes and the new and upcoming ones. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast. Y'all leave us a review. We love to see how you guys are enjoying this show and be sure to tune in on WVBR 93.5 FM every single Friday at two o'clock. We'll see you next week. Shout out to my executive producers, Mike Seitz and Grace Fairchild. Peace out. Yeah.